following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Today, we are starting a new series. I'm excited. I hope you are, now that I just told you that big bit of juicy news. Uh, We're starting a a new series. We're going to go through the book of Hebrews. Uh, We're going to take a break for Advent, so that's like Christmas season, uh, in December. But this study will take us all the way up to Easter in April. Okay, so roughly 24 weeks in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We've titled this series, Never Better, because the book of Hebrews is primarily an argument for the supremacy of Christ and the new covenant over the old covenant that many were still clinging to either in whole or in part at the time that this was written. The word better, in English of course, appears 13 times throughout this book. There's also 13 chapters. Uh, One thing I would say, when we get to chapter 13, it's funny to me, the author says, uh, after 13 chapters, he says, uh, look at how few words I've written to you. Um, So just a little something for you to think about when it comes to sermon length and how you think about it. Amen. Got to get them in. Okay, so. He thought that was a short, short letter. Just a few words, 13 chapters. Amen. Uh, so what, what the author does is he labors intensely throughout this letter, which does read very much like a sermon, more so than other New Testament letters. He labors intensely to encourage the readers to see that if they have received the grace of God through Christ, if they have been made righteous by God through faith in Christ, Christ, and if they have been set free from slavery to sin by the power of Christ, then they have never been and never will be in a better place than they are because of Jesus. That's really the crux of the, the book and the thrust of the argumentation. Now, if that's true, then of course it means the opposite is true. Without the saving power of Christ's gospel, restoring a man or woman to right relationship with God, then the pain and brokenness that every human experiences as a result of living uh, in light of the purpose for which they were created, they will never get better. They will never get better. What am I saying? That, that That was a little bit long. What I'm saying is every single human feels it. Whether they can put their finger on it or not, they can tell something's wrong if they're disconnected from the God that made them. And the only way that's going to get better, there's lots of ways we try to make it better. We try to ignore it, try to chase after other things that seem like maybe temporarily it makes that, that ache and that nagging go away. But it's really only going to be in fixing the actual problem, which is that you and I were made to be in relationship with God. And if we're not, it hurts. There's a pain to that. So our hope is, after 24 weeks of carefully examining this book together, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be able to say with conviction that because of him, you have never been better. 
Well, what if I'm going through a really hard time? Yes, still. And we'll, we'll get there. I don't want to get off into that too much. The, the author anticipates that thought, right? Uh, and is obviously also writing to Christians uh, in the first century. So, you know, they had their share of problems <laughs> uh, as a result of following Jesus. So the, the hope is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you'll be able to say with genuine conviction, you have never been better. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, the hope is through this study, you'll be convinced that without him, things will never truly get better in the way that matters most. Uh, now, <clears throat> those of you that have been around a while, you probably have caught on to kind of a cadence. That's probably about the normal length of an introduction to a sermon, but we're starting a whole new book today and a book that is unique in several facets. So I have to take a little bit more time today to lay some groundwork before we jump right into these scriptures. There's some things I need to let you know about this book that's important for us to consider before we jump in here uh, neck deep and study it, okay? The book of Hebrews is unique. It is different than other New Testament books. I would say in a lot of ways, but maybe the two primary ways is when it comes to its author and its audience. Um, Unlike other New Testament letters, which are either named after their author, right? So you've got uh, books written by Peter, you got the book of James, you got books written by John. You kind of know who wrote it, right? Their name is there at the front. Or some of the New Testament books are named for their audience, right? You got the book to Timothy, written by Paul. You got the book to Titus, or even books to churches like Romans or Ephesians or Philippians, right? So you know who wrote it, uh, because even in those cases that I just mentioned, you know, Paul says, this is written by Paul, right? So, and even appeals to apostolic authority for them to listen. So this letter, the book of Hebrews, does not explicitly name either its author or its audience, which is interesting. Now, we'll start with the author. As far as the author goes, uh, much ink has been spilled and, and much conjecture and contention has swirled throughout church history. Uh, this will be interesting. This is just, this is selfish on my part. It's just an interesting anecdote for me. Uh, raise your hand if you have an opinion about the author of Hebrews. Raise your hand if you have an opinion about the author of Hebrews. Okay. That's, that's about what I thought. All right, good. That's fine. Totally fine. At one level, it's, it's, it's Bible nerd stuff um, at one level. So we just found all the Bible nerds in the room. Amen. My people. Uh, <laughs> so, but this, this, you know, <laughs> we tend in the church uh, throughout history to focus on things that are less clear and, and, and argue in circles about them as opposed to focusing and uniting around the things that are really clear. We just do that because we're goofy sometimes. So this is one of those things that tends to happen. Uh, so some have thought that the author is Paul of, of the book of Hebrews. He just, in this case, didn't say that. But if it was Paul, uh, he structured his sentences and argumentation much differently than in other letters. And uh, of course, as in all the other letters, he didn't say, hey, this is Paul. So that is, would be interesting if he chose not to do that. Also, if, if you look at the author's use of the Greek language, this book is written in Greek originally, the Greek in which Hebrews was written is pristine. It is, there's kind of, you, you know how it is, even in English, you, you speak to some people 
uh, and their use of English is more like street level, which I'm not, you know, there's whatever. Everyone's where they're at, and that's fine. You talk to some people, though, and just the, the way they use the language is different, right? You can kind of tell maybe this person has read more books than maybe me or someone else, right? Just by the way they speak, the words that they use, how they structure their sentences, right? And Hebrews is like that. It's somebody that is a, has a masterful grab of ancient Greek. And so uh, that has led some to guess, maybe, that Paul dictated this letter, but Luke wrote it down. Because, you know, Luke was also very good at Greek and wrote some other books that we could compare and, and know that about him. This does matter. I know for some of you, you're like, oh, I'll get to some application, but this matters. We're going to spend 24 weeks in this book, okay? I want you to understand some things around uh, why this book is different, and it, it play, it's, going to, it's going to affect application, and, and it affects the way we understand the argumentation and all of that. So this, this stuff matters. Just hang with me if you're uh, trying to nod off, okay? Uh, many have suggested, including Martin Luther, that Apollos may have been the author, uh, partly because of the description we see in Acts 18, verse 24. It says this about Apollos. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was proficient in the scriptures. So if Luke is writing about a guy in the book of Acts, think about the timeline. He's saying he's proficient in the scriptures. What is he talking about? He's proficient then in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Okay? That's interesting because this letter is chock full of quotations from and references to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Um, and, And interestingly, also, each of these quotations that we see throughout the book of Hebrews, when, when it's quoting the Old Testament, <clears throat> they are all made from the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's known as the Septuagint. Okay, And the Septuagint was likely created by a group of Jewish scholars in Alexandria, which was a city in Egypt. Okay, So I'm, I'm re- I really don't have a dogmatic position about the authorship of Hebrews, but if you stuck a toothpick up to my eye and said, I'm going to stab you with this if you don't pick right now, I'd probably say my best guess is Apollos. But you don't have to think that. Now, if, you're, if you do have an adamant, dogmatic position about the author of Hebrews, uh, you can meet me in the parking lot outside afterwards and we can scrap about it. It's fine if you want to. <laughs> um, I might just try to fight you into not being dogmatic about it because we really don't know. We really don't. But I think that's a good thing, actually. Um, an interesting side note this, that may interest some of you, we're going to get out of the, the deepest Bible nerd stuff here in just a second, but this, for some of you this will be an interesting little tidbit. Though all of the quotations we see in Hebrews are from the Septuagint, uh, which the Septuagint was a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament done 2 or 3 B.C.-ish, um, <clears throat> The Septuagint includes the Apocrypha, but all, in all of the quotations we see in Hebrews from the Septuagint, where this author is making this argumentation that Jesus and the New Covenant are supreme to the Old Covenant, there's not one quotation from the Apocrypha. So some of you are like, why does that matter? I don't have time to explain it, but if you know why it matters and it's interesting to you, there you go. That was free. Okay. 
The audience for this letter is not specifically named, but it is clear that they were believers who were very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, Why am I saying that? Because the author here just starts out with God, and he doesn't stop to lay any background. He doesn't stop to defend that God exists. He doesn't try to explain anything about how all that works. He just assumes these people have a working knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Torah, but also some things in the prophets and elsewhere. So uh, it, it, that almost guarantees this was intended for Jewish believers, right? If the, if the intended audience here was going to Gentiles that did not have a good grasp on the Old Testament scriptures, then, then there would have to be so much more prefacing happening in the book of Hebrews for him to explain, because he just, he'll just rip off, he's like, this author is just making a point, like, okay, here's, here's uh, Jesus is superior to Moses, and here's the reason. He'll just rip off and use stories, and, and, and he's using that as an analogy and an example. He doesn't explain anything, doesn't lay out, like, here's, this is what happens if you don't know, right? He just assumes you know. So the audience is clearly people familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, probably Jewish believers. Now, some of you might be thinking, and I genuinely hope that you are, If we don't know for sure the author or the exact audience, how can we be sure this book is inspired scripture? I, honestly, if you haven't already thought about that, worked through that, and, and, and you know, come to a conclusion, if this is kind of the first time you're hearing this stuff, I genuinely hope you're asking that question. Because that's important, right? Because when it comes to canonicity, when it comes to how we determine, or, or we don't determine it, God determines about how we discover which books are inspired, who the author is and who the audience is. These are parts, big parts of how generally we would, we would know that this is something that, that God inspired. Authorship needs to be tied to apostolic authority because that ties straight to Jesus' authority, right? That's part of the deal. So if we don't know who this is, well, that, that could be a problem. Uh, seems like maybe there's some, some big blank spots in terms of the information for us to be confident this was something God won't included in the scriptures. Um, but when in identifying the books inspired by God, we, we, we do look at authors and audience, um, but even if we don't know their exact location, it, it, it is clear that this was written to Jewish believers. So we don't have in this book uh, this is to the church at Ephesus, or this is to the church at Thessalonica. We, we don't have that, but, but it's, it's really clear if we read the contents that this was written to Jewish believers. So we got at least that much. And even if we don't know the exact author, we do know that the author received their instruction from the apostles who received their instruction from Jesus. And that's really important. Because there are other books that have popped up throughout church history and claim to be on par with Scripture, things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. You probably heard of some of these. You probably maybe read, saw some movies or read some books by Dan Brown where a bunch of dots are connected, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's hidden Scripture, hidden knowledge. The church, the evil church, has buried these things. Um, but you know, part of the issue there is uh, a, major, a, a major issue that we have to consider when it comes to, is, is this book or letter something God intended to be in the scriptures, is its connection to Jesus through the apostles, okay? That's, we can't, we can't take something from someone, for example, who wrote the Gospel of Thomas, this thing pops up 200 years after everybody's dead, that's tied to the apostles or their disciples, and, and say, oh, I've, I've got some knowledge that nobody knew about, 
200 years later, and, and I'm about to drop it on you, right? That's a red flag. But what we do have in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 is this. Uh, it's a warning, but it reveals something. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us, okay, so the, the author's putting himself in a group, by those who heard. Those who heard the Lord teach what? So great a salvation, that's the apostles. The apostles are the ones who heard it from Jesus directly. And then this guy's putting himself in a group, of disciples of the apostles. So Jesus told them, they told us. We're we're one step away from the master. Okay? God also testifying with them. Okay, why do we trust the apostle? Well, God did some stuff, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. Right? Paul's bitten by a viper, doesn't die. Uh, Peter and John are healing people at the gate called beautiful, and all the things, right, that God did. All the miraculous signs to say, hey, my power is with these guys, listen to them, right? In addition to just the beautiful resonance of the gospel message and the power, it's, it has itself, okay? So here we have authorship connected directly to the apostles, connected directly to Jesus. That is, is part of why we can feel safe here. Another element that we look for when identifying scripture as inspired by God is when it was written. I already kind of mentioned that in in referencing some of these other works that have claimed to be on par with Scripture. But it needs to be early. It needs to be within the time frame that when the, the, the work, the letter, the book makes claims that they can be verified by people that were still around to say, you're saying that that happened, but that didn't really happen. right? If we get too far away from that, then you can just start making stuff up. And it becomes like a fairy tale. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the inspired Word of God. It needs to be true, right? Amen. So, when it was written. And so, how do we know when this was written? It's not dated, but again, if you study carefully and and think about the argumentation and all of that, you can come to, to a fairly clear conclusion. So, I told you the book of Hebrews, its summary is... What is this about? It's, it's an argument for the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And it's the argument that Jesus is supreme to all things is rooted in, the primary way the argument is made, is in comparison to the Old Covenant. Okay, And so that means this letter, it's highly unlikely that this letter was written after 70 AD. Why? Well, for some of you, light bulbs already went off because you know a little bit of Bible history. In 70 AD is when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay? Now, let's just think for a second. If I'm going to write a letter and I want to argue that Jesus is supreme over all things, and I want to primarily write that to Jewish, either Jewish believers who are maybe being pulled back into a a moralistic, legalistic framework. Maybe let's try to blend together some Judaism and Christianity, see if we can make a hybrid here, which is a lot of what this book is addressing. Or I'm I'm just trying to talk to Jews who have have yet to come to the conclusion that Jesus is Messiah, right? And and, and I'm going to write this book and I'm going to say, look, Jesus is better than all these, Jesus is better than the prophets, Jesus is better than Moses. Ooh, careful, that'll get you stoned. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. This, I'm going to write a book about that, right? And, and, and my argumentation is going to be rooted in, in the Old Testament, rooted in comparison to the Old Covenant. 
<laughs> if God allowed the temple in Jerusalem, the center of the continuation of Old Testament worship, if he's going to let that thing be knocked down, and that was your argumentation, that's the thrust you're coming from, don't you think he'd mention that somewhere in the letter? Like, hey, and by the way, in case you think God's still really hip on that Old Testament sacrificial system, he did in his sovereignty let the temple get knocked down. So maybe not, right? We can be almost certain as a result of the fact that we have no mention of the destruction of the temple in this book. It was written previous to that happening, which is easily traceable to the year 70 AD, okay? Also, uh, there's a reference to Timothy in, uh, this writer calls Timothy a brother. He doesn't call him a son like Paul does uh, in the faith. Reference to Timothy as a brother that also helps us place it in the time frame. He speaks of Timothy as if Timothy's alive, so we know this is early, uh, along with other books that we know were written early. Okay, so um, all of that I think is important. And here's the thing, like, I want you to be thinking people. I, I, I've, I've said this many times. I, I am, <clears throat> my goal is to teach you how to think, not what to think, always. And so part of me leading you through this is, first of all, if you, if you weren't asking the question, well, hold on, if we don't know the author, how do we know this is scripture? Like in the future, I want, be more skeptical, like stay on the side of trusting God because he's shown us enough to trust him, but ask good questions, right? Don't just take it because someone, just, if I stood up here and didn't give you anything, but just said, well, by God, this is, this is bound in a book that's called the Bible, so you better listen to it, right? And that's all I had for you? Yeah, some of you heard some stuff like that before. That's why that's funny. And, and some of you haven't, and you'll, I guess, praise God that you've never been in that kind of... Now, now, hold on, let me just... What else do I have to say that's not going down that rabbit hole? Um, here's, I'm going to give you... All of that is, I think, pertinent information to, to come to the conclusion that this is trustworthy uh, and, and to be seen as Scripture. But the greatest evidence is, is the content of the book itself, in my view. I think everything else we said is true and right to consider, but the greatest proof that this is the, is the word of God is in the content itself. Let me read you this, and just let's reason together. This is John 15, 26. This is Jesus, the master, talking about what's going to happen as the Holy Spirit is sent to us. When the helper comes, this is your master speaking, whom I will send to you from the Father, Namely, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify about me. The primary work of the Holy Spirit in the earth today is to point men and women to Jesus. We believe all the books of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. The work of the Holy Spirit of God is to point people to Jesus. As you will see over the next 24 weeks, if you are not already familiar with the content of this letter... I don't know if there is a book of the Bible that is more squarely focused on the supremacy and glory and goodness and, and, and worthiness to be worshipped of Christ. The content itself screams, I am scripture, I am inspired. Because it is all about how much better Jesus is than any other old foolish thing that we would settle for. Amen. So that, that to me kind of trumps all the rest in terms of understanding whether or not this is something I should read as scripture. So regardless of the human vessel used to write these words, the true author is the Holy Spirit, who is God. And, and that was part of the prayerful process. You'll hear people often 
attack the, the whole idea that these 66 books, 39 old, 27 new, of, of the scriptures are, are really God's word. Oh man, man wrote that and man picked that. Well, look, if, if we believe in a God mighty enough to create all things, mighty enough to pull off redemptive history, fulfill all of his promises, I, I think it, it's not even a stretch to think that that God who has revealed himself through the Logos, the word from the beginning, has used words to communicate to his people from the beginning who he is and what he expects and all of that, that he would be able to orchestrate a process to have the assembly of the words that he wanted for his people to have. So at one level, trusting in the scriptures is by faith, but it isn't just by faith. There are also logical, um, wise things that we can look at, uh, pay attention to, that, that would root out maybe something that, that claims to be scripture that is not. So I trust that God guided that process. Now, this is, is not meant to be a introduction seminary class to the canonicity of scripture, but if we're going to jump into the book of Hebrews for 24 weeks, we had to stop and take a minute just to think about this and understand how this works and why we should have <clears throat> a high degree of confidence that God has assembled his word and that these words are from him to us. Because that matters, right? You, there are people that read the Bible like they read any other book. It has some cool things, and maybe it's inspirational. But if you're going to take the Bible on its face, it doesn't leave us that option. The Bible is authoritative to those who belong to Jesus. If the Bible says it, it's not, I'm not going to add that to a buffet of potential ideas and then pick which one I think I like the best. Every, I'm going to take every thought captive that is contrary to the Word of God and cast it to the ground. Right? The word has authority for believers. It should. It should. Okay. Amen. You guys ready to read some scripture now? All right. So we're just going to, some of you are so nervous because that took a while. Uh, but we're only looking at Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Okay? Because the author is going to start some argumentation. He's going to transition then in verse 4. And the rest of chapter 1 kind of stays on the next theme, the next comparison. And so we're just going to stay in these first three verses today. So take a deep breath. Lunch cometh. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Praise God for his word. Now you kind of get why that second song we sang this morning pre-preached the sermon for me. Woo, buddy. Okay. Let's, let's look at this. So, verse 1. After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. What's he talking about? Talking about the fathers in the faith, right? So this is a... This is a, a well, 
this, <laughs> this is, I almost said this because of my opinion about the authorship, I almost spoke as if that was the case. So we know this is a Jewish person writing to Jewish people. That's, we do know that much, okay? So uh, <laughs> because of their command of the Old Testament scriptures and their assumption of the, the command of the audience of the Old Testament scriptures, okay? So we got that much. So what we, when we talk about fathers, you're talking about the fathers in the faith, right? So through, he's talking about the Old Testament patriarchs and, and the kings and the judges, right? So God spoke through prophets to all of these people, interestingly, in many portions and in many ways. And he's, he's saying, so God spoke that way, but in these last days, verse 2, he's spoken to us in his son. And, and, and it's... The use of the word portions in verse 1 is, is a key juxtaposition to then saying that he's now spoken to us in his son. He doesn't, he doesn't say fully in his son, but that is the idea. God spoke in portions, in partial, to the, prophet, to the fathers, through the prophets, in times past. But now that the son is here, everything he said to them plus more has been made clear. This is the, the final word, the, the last word we need on all that God has to say to us is in his son, is in Christ. Now, what, is, what does that look like? Is that, is that real? Is that just hyperbole? Is, is, is this guy a preacher and exaggerating? Because everyone knows, you know, preachers are kind of famous for that. They shouldn't be, but they are, and that's sad. But anyways, uh, what, let's look at this. Let's think about this for a second. What, if we just run through, we can't do them all, but think about some of the prophets of the Old Testament and, and what God spoke through them. What were, the, what were the main messages of some of the ministry of, of prophets in the Old Testament? Well, if, if you're talking to a Jewish person and, and you say prophet, you, you talk about prominent figures throughout the, the history of their people. Number one, always top of the list, influential person in Hebrew thought is Moses. That's, it's, that's where they're going to go. Moses. Okay? And Moses... Had a, had a main message. There was lots of things Moses said, but God used Moses to, to communicate this main message to the people that surrounded this idea, that obedience to God will lead to your greatest possible good. Now again, I know Moses said a lot of other things, but if you really boil down the entirety of Moses' ministry, all that God used him to say, you, you could boil it down in, in one sense to the, the idea that obedience to God will lead to your greatest good. And so what I want to start to do now is as we work through this, think, okay, did Jesus also model or teach that? Yes, he did, clearly, that obedience to God will lead to your greatest good. He spoke about it and he lived it in such a way to, for us to see it's, it's indisputable. Uh, obedience to God will lead to your greatest good. So Moses' main message, Moses, there was, there was no way any of the prophets were going to be able to communicate in, in, in a short lifespan the fullness of the revelation of God's character and what he wants us to know, but he gave it to, to them in pieces, right? And that's part, part of the first argument here of this, the author of Hebrews is, this is why Jesus is a better messenger. Jesus is a better message because he's not just a messenger, he's the message, okay? So Moses, Moses had a message, Jesus preached it better. Elijah, Elijah did a lot, said a lot, rad stuff, right? We like Elijah. Primary boil it down message was repentance from dead idols and to worship the true God. Repentance from dead idols and to worship the true God. 
Did Jesus preach that? Did Jesus show that? Absolutely. And even better than Elijah. Yes, he did. He came saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? He talked about the need for repentance and, and gave, gave the people a clearer picture of who the true God is to worship. So in his messaging, it's not just what Jesus spoke. It's, it's that it's, it's his, in his living and in his doing, he was, he was helping people to see this incredible contrast between the living God in him and those dead idols that they would be tempted to worship, okay? So Moses had a message, Elijah had a message, Jesus came and rounded it out, filled it all the way in, preached it, lived it better. Isaiah, boil Isaiah's ministry down. We're talking about prophets who God spoke through in portions, right? Why are we doing this? Because we're showing what, what is the argumentation here, what's being made. Elijah, sorry, Isaiah, Boil it down. Again, I know this is, I'm, I'm, you know, if some of you are like, oh, Isaiah's my favorite prophet, and he said way more than what you're about to say. Like, I get that. But you can kind of boil down a main message for these guys. Isaiah, I would say, is fear God, not man. Isaiah was the kind of brother to walk into somebody with power and just tell them about themselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? No issue. How does, how does the cow eat the cabbage? Isaiah will tell you. He has no issue with it. He did not fear men, but fear God instead. Did Jesus show that? I would say absolutely. Jesus obeyed God in all things, no matter what men thought about it. Jesus also happened to stroll up to the power brokers of his day and say things like, uh, you guys are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You brood of vipers, how will you escape hell? That's not ver- not a- Jesus would be a bad politician, man. He's not polished at all and he did not fear man but he he modeled for us very much what it means to fear God in a reverential way in a holy way Jeremiah the, the thrust of Jeremiah's ministry and message that God wants our hearts and that God's heart is broken by our sin the prophet Jeremiah known as the weeping prophet primarily was, was letting people know God's not looking for some superficial set of rule obeying here. That's not the whole thing, man. God wants your heart. And if he doesn't have your heart, it breaks his heart. Did Jesus model that? Absolutely modeled that God wants our heart, that he's looking for real relationship with people. I mean, the whole coming to earth and being a human and like dealing with us at all kind of shows how far God will go in order to do that. But we also see Jesus like Jeremiah, standing and weeping over the state of the people. You know, that's some people's favorite verses. It's really easy to remember. Jesus wept. Two words. But, I mean, if you think about the way humans conceptualize God or gods, I mean, do, do, our, do our super strong heroes stand and, and cry because they're hurting emotionally over the state of of People's rebellion and heartache, not, not a whole lot. Jesus, man, shows us the heart of the Father in an even clearer way than Jeremiah was able to. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, that God's love for us is long-suffering even when we act like harlots and betray him. Now, if you're not familiar with Hosea, I would encourage you to get in there. I don't have time to unpack it right now, uh, but 
was did Jesus show us anything about God's long-suffering patience with people? Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, it's not even an analogy. He, he specifically showed grace and mercy and long-suffering patience to harlots, okay? So, which, of course, was scandalous, and everyone you know, wanted to stone him about it. But uh, it just a, a Jesus, and, and it gets into this as we go into verse 3, you know, this idea of him being the radiance of God and, and the imprint of God, right? Like, he, in portions, God had revealed himself as much as, as could be revealed through the medium of prophets and through the medium of him dealing with the people of Israel in the redemptive timeline. Things had to unfold in such a certain way. But, but God, all, and, and God is so smart. He knew it, it's okay. Like, there's, there's gonna be some maybe even misunderstanding or there's going to be some dark spots in people's understanding about exactly how I am and who I am, but there's going to come a day where all those dark spots, any dark spot that could be illuminated by truth, I'm, I'm going to come in the flesh and make it obvious who I am and how I feel and how I would react to anything. It's going to happen in the incarnation as Christ comes and walks among mankind and deals with all different kinds of situations. And then God in his great sovereignty is going to have Jesus pick disciples. We're going to be around, watch it, observe it, write it down, and then it's going to be here for us. Thank you, Lord, for having a plan. Uh, the prophet Haggai, right? Main message, seek God first. You guys get, you guys get it twisted. You get, you get focused on building your own house before building the house of God. You get, you get your priorities in a... You get two, too jazzed up about what's going on in this world versus uh, what's an eternal view of things. I would summarize that as the main message of the uh, prophet Haggai. Uh, Did Jesus say that? Well, you ever read Matthew 6? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what? All these things will be added to you. What are all the things? Well, he talked about God taking care of birds and lilies and everything anybody worries about that they need. Seek first the kingdom and God will take care of that stuff. You make your focus on God and his kingdom, and he is a faithful provider. Jesus came in and not only spoke it better, but showed it better than the prophet Haggai could. Okay? So, that's, what, that's I wanted to take you through that. There's lots more prophets. You know, we could have talked about David and Samuel and lots, right? More. Uh, Zephaniah, and there's, there's many more we could have. Obadiah. Uh, I'm just going to name them all, I guess. I'll stop right there. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's the argumentation, right? I want you to understand what's in the mind of the writer here and what he's trying to get people to think about. God re- revealed himself in portions and, and through the prophets. Jesus came and did it even better. Did, he, he finished that, okay? Now, one, thing, one, one facet of this sermon series that I want to prepare you for is this reality. I am very aware that there's less than a 1% chance that anybody that, the application of all of this is, is not going to be direct for very many of you. I don't think most of, of you have a barrier between you and the fullness of relationship with God because you're being tempted back into Judaism. You understand what I'm saying? I don't think that's the problem for most of you. Maybe some of you, or maybe one of you. I don't know. And if that's you, then hallelujah, this book's going to help you. But the application is broader than just being tempted back into Judaism because the, the Old Testament system represented some things. It represented 
the idea, look, look at what it turned into by the time Jesus came on the scene. You had, you had a, a whole class of people thinking that they were obeying the law good enough to please God on their own. Self-salvation, moralism, legalism, right? These, and so we definitely struggle with those. You, you may not be tempted to try to build a replica of the temple or the tabernacle, ta- tabern, what? It's a tabernacle. The temple or the tabernacle. My wife thought that was funny. That's good. Uh, you, may, you may not be tempted to, to try to prepare an altar of sacrifice in your backyard and start taking unblemished sheep back there and, and, and recreating, get you some showbread, you know, and a lamp stand. You, you may not be tempted to do that and think that that's what's going to save you, but don't get it twisted. We have all kinds of ways where we are tempted to be pulled back into some version of moralism, legalism, or on the opposite end of the thing, uh, just thinking... Well, sin's not that big of a deal anyways, so kind of this, this hyper-grace model. But I want you to know that there, there were prophets of old that saw in part, and, and think about this with me, isn't it not true that we also in our day have prophets of sorts as well who see in part? See, part of the application here is I don't want us to sit here and we just think about, you know, Jesus was better than Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, uh, okay, well, that's cool. And I'm really glad that this guy that wrote Hebrews, you know, did a great job helping people see that, you know, Christianity is better than Judaism. And that's the end of it. Like it's, it's, it's something that doesn't apply to us. It's just, this, this could end up just being more of a, a history that we read, something that we're detached from as opposed to letting it in to really work on us like it's supposed to. Because we have voices that we listen to that speak in part. And they speak sometimes as if, from a place of authority. And oftentimes that place of authority is something we grant them just because of the way we think of influence and celebrity and all of that. And so let me, let me just run down some examples to you of what I'm talking about because I want you to understand what, what the writer of Hebrews wrote to these people, motivated by love for them and wanting them to see the supremacy of Christ in all things, how Christ is better than all things. Any other thing you can try to go to to find your ultimate purpose in life and fulfill why you were made. Jesus is better. Their struggle was, was thinking that the, the, the Old Testament, Old Covenant was, was, was the way. Most of us, that's not the issue, but we do have these same temptations. We are not unlike them. We are not free of these kinds of stumbling blocks. So I look, what, how did I figure out how to talk about this? I went to, so Time Magazine every year publishes a, the, the 100 most influential people. Okay, so I went and looked at that list for 2022. Who does Time Magazine, and you might say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, whatever. I needed some reference point. Time Magazine has a list of the 100 most influential people. So I went through, and they, and they break them into categories. And uh, I, I just picked, I picked a few that I thought maybe you'd know who they were. And then I looked up the quotes that they are most well-known for saying. And, and how did I do it? Well, like, if I look up their quotes, and there's one that's repeated a bunch or is up to the top of the list. Uh, that's, that's how I came up with this. So the first one, this, and so this woman is listed on Time 100 Most Influential People, is Mia Kunis. You guys know who Mia Kunis is? Is she still with Ashton Kutcher? Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't keep up with these things. Is that right? Is that even the right person? Nobody knows. You guys just read your Bible. You don't know anything about culture. That's good. I'm glad. I'm talking to the right people here. I think she was on That 70s Show, maybe some other movies, Ringing a Bell. Okay. Not. Anyways, time thinks she's influential, whether you have any idea who she is or not. Uh, here's a, a quote that was kind of at the top of, of the list that, that you could find on the internet from her. 
My, my goal in life is to enjoy what I do and never look back and say, I wish I would have done that. My goal in life is to enjoy what I do and never look back and say, I wish I would have done that. Now, I want you to understand something. My point in what I'm about to work through with you is not to disparage these people. And actually, every quote I picked has within it strands of truth. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying what you do from a biblical perspective. Actually, God really wants you to. But God's going to ask deeper questions about why you enjoy what you do. Like, why do you enjoy anything? What, what brings you joy? Is it that I'm making a bunch of money or I feel like doing what I do gives me power or I feel like doing what I do, is it selfish in its motivation? Is there anything about glorifying God bringing you joy in what you do, right? But you could read that and if you don't have a biblical framework, you could, you could read my goal in life is to enjoy what I do, say, oh yeah, yep, that's inspirational and I don't ever want to look back and say, I wish I would have done that and I want no regrets. I would say that's, Mia Kunis is holding a part of the truth. I think Jesus has a better message than that, a fuller message than that, that we were made to, yes, enjoy life, but enjoy life in light of the fact that God made us for a purpose and to see our greatest joy coming and finding that purpose, not me kind of self-determining that. Because, man, uh, I'm just, I'm just a silly old human and I could find out that what I thought I really enjoyed, that wasn't even the thing. It was just a season thing or who knows. Or something, something could change and jack all that up. I think Jesus has a fuller message. Uh, Oprah Winfrey. Good Lord, you know who Oprah Winfrey is, right? Everybody in here? Everybody knows Oprah. Oh, all right. You get a quote and you get a quote. Everyone gets a quote. All right. Here's, here's two quotes from Oprah. She's also in the time, for 2022, top influential people, okay? I believe every single event in life is an opportunity to choose love over fear. That's true, that's, that's pretty true, that's good, isn't it? That's a good strand of truth right there that Oprah's grabbed a hold of. But here's another quote, comes right behind that. This is also from Oprah. Surround yourself only with people who are going to take you higher. Okay, now let's hold those up and let's think for a second. Every single event in life is an opportunity to choose love over fear. Surround yourself only with people who are going to take you higher. Now, as, as a cultural prophet, as an influential voice, that first quote, I can get down with that. But that other quote... Is, is, is a problematic contradiction to the first quote, but apparently this cultural prophet doesn't see it. Because if the idea is every, every event in life is an opportunity to choose love over fear, well, what, is, what even is my understanding of love? Well, that, that should be me preferring others above myself. That should be me willing to sacrifice for others. Uh, having the idea that I'm only going to surround myself with people that I think are going to be able to help me get higher, what does that mean? Probably depends on the person. Man, that's really problematic. And, and I don't think the Bible will even be against the idea of, the Bible talks about having, um, having many counselors. There's wisdom in that, to surround yourself with people smarter than you, 
Absolutely, you should do that. If you don't have anybody in your sphere that's smarter than you or doing better at what it is you're trying to do, boy, you should probably change that. But the Bible also says to associate with the lowly in humility. And for us to be wise enough to understand that someone that maybe is not doing as good in you in some, however we measure that, that you can learn as much from them as you could from someone that you perceive as to be ahead of you. So, again, we've got a cultural prophet here that's holding strands of truth, but then there's, there's, it's not the fullness. Jesus has a better, fuller message on how to understand this. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, okay? Let your joy be in your journey, not in some distant goal. You see it? There's half, half of that's, yeah, let, there should be joy in the journey. Yep, that's, good job, Tim Cook. Encourage people to enjoy the ride and all of that. I could see that on a poster. But it's problematic to put it in stark contrast only to either you can enjoy the journey or have joy in some distant goal. Not that it could be both. Because Jesus' message is both. Live a life full of joy in God here and now. May God be glorified as you live joyfully in the midst of all of what you're doing. But also... Have your greatest joy in this unshakable truth that there is a destination coming where everything that's hard about right now will not be. Jesus is better. I, I'm not sure how this is landing. Let me just make sure so that I don't forget to say this. All I'm saying is that Jesus is better than Elijah and Moses and Haggai and Oprah and Mia Kunis and Tim Cook. Like everyone's cool with that, right? I'm just taking a long time to say that. We good? Okay, great. The last one, this one will be exciting. It's okay, just remember what I just said. Joe Rogan, hold on, man, don't talk about Joe Rogan. That's my, that's my podcast, I get it, man. Look, I listen to some Joe Rogan podcasts. Some of you are, oh my God, he does? He violates his eardrums with that filth? Look, man. I, I, I watch and listen to a lot of things for the express purpose of this truth that I know a lot of people in our culture are listening to. And as a, as a missiologist, as someone that wants to know how to get the gospel to the people in the place and time where I am, I need to pay attention to what the heck is going on. Joe Rogan has a lot of influence. Like maybe you hadn't, well, you had to have heard of Oprah. You may not have known who Tim Cook and Mia Kunis is, but when I said the name Joe Rogan, 98% of you know who that is today. Now, Go 10 years back, you wouldn't, because Joe Ro all Joe Rogan did was host Fear Factor and UFC fights, which very few of you, you know, probably know anything about. But now he's got this podcast, and something about the way he does it has captured the imagination of a great many people. And there's a lot of influence there. Here's a quote from Joe Rogan. The key to happiness doesn't lay in numbers in a bank account. There's a strand of truth. That's good. Thank you, Joe Rogan. That's good. But in, so it doesn't lay in that, but in the way we make others feel and the way they make us feel. It was like, this is pretty good. <laughs> Crash and burn. You might be like, well, hold on. What's wrong with that? It, and if, if, let me just say it again all together. The key to happiness doesn't lay in numbers in a bank account, but in the way we make others feel and the way they make us feel. If you just heard me say that, and you're like, well, dude, what's wrong with that? 
this sermon series is for you. <laughs> and the Bible is for you. And you need more time in it. That's what I'm saying. That's the problem. That, that you could read stuff like this from people. And I'm not saying Joe Rogan or Oprah Winfrey or any of these people tried to set themselves up in the place of cultural prophets. But I'm just telling you the way humans work, this is how it ends up happening. These are the people people are listening to. These are the people Time Magazine say are the 100 most influential people in the world right now. That they've got social media accounts and they've got podcasts and they've got all this stuff and they've got these quotes floating around and people look at them and they're successful and, and, and oftentimes they're pretty or whatever. They're, they're oftentimes many things that people want to be and so they cling on to these things that they have to say oftentimes that contain strands of truth. And again, I'm not trying to bag on any of these people. What I'm saying is Jesus is better. Jesus' message is better. Jesus, the revelation of Jesus telling us who God is and thus who we are and what that means for what life means is better. It's better. It's Yes, happiness doesn't lay in numbers in a bank account. That's a great truth and something that could probably help many of us because we're all probably tempted in our current cultural context to, to center our self-worth or our sense of safety or happiness or whatever on numbers in a bank account. Of course, that's a temptation. Thank you, Joe Rogan, for that strand of truth. But it goes deeper than the way we make others feel and the way they make us feel. Feelings are not the end arbiter of truth and or uh, whether or not we're, we're fulfilling the full purpose that God has made us for. Feelings are valid and important. They're, they are valid and important. I just didn't want to overstate it. Um, I think oftentimes in our current cultural context, to, to say, that, say that someone's feelings may not represent reality is almost like blasphemy or heretical. Like how could you possibly say that? And, and that's problematic. Um, feelings being elevated to the, like the highest arbiter of truth is uh, <clears throat> a recipe for disaster. Um, if my feelings don't line up with the word of God, I, I don't then assume the word of God has gone astray. Uh, my feelings then need to be brought into subjection to the word of God. Is that always comfortable? <laughs> Rarely ever. Probably going to hurt, <laughs> you know? Um, but man, do, do we really want a world where, well, what I think and feel right now, if you just have to believe that and take it as gospel truth and there, we can't say anything else about it because I think it and feel it. That's a scary place to live. Uh, it's, it's untenable. It doesn't even work. We need, we need some baseline, some way to know for sure what is true and what is not. And, uh, Jesus is the only one that's actually provided us a foundation that can stand throughout all of time and through all of the storms and through all the difficulties that come as a result of this world being broken by sin. Okay? So, Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is better than our current cultural prophets. That was my point. I hope you get it. Let's go to verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So again, for the next two verses, he's just kind of getting the party started on us seeing Jesus as supreme, as better than all things. So he's spoken to us in his son. I already said this, but I want you to hear it again. It's not just that God sent Jesus with a, with a message to speak. 
Jesus is the message himself. He is the word become flesh. And what, well, how do I, I'm saying that real confident. Why? Well, because he's appointed him heir of all things. That's a reason to listen to him, to look up to him. And through whom also he made the world. Okay, that's pretty good credentials. Verse three, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Part of the purpose of Christ, Christ did come. You'll hear people say, um, like, Jesus came to die. And that's it. And, and if you're talking specifically about that, I don't think it's wrong to say that phrase. But the fullness of all that Jesus came to do, it wasn't just, Jesus whole, the whole time from being born in a manger to dying on the cross, it, it wasn't just that like, if it, if it was just about the cross and the resurrection, like why didn't God just drop Jesus in as an adult straight onto the cross, get that done and off we go? Why was there 33-ish years in between, because it, it wasn't just about that. Part of what Jesus did, when it talks about him being the radiance, look at that. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. You break down the language there. The, the, the best analogy you're going to get is that you have never actually seen the sun. Do you know that? Like the sun, I don't mean the S-O-N, I mean the sun, the big ball of burning gas that like lights all this, keeps us warm. That's what I'm, the sun. You've never actually seen the sun. Do you know that? What you've seen is the light that radiates off of the sun. You, you, the sun is so bright, you can't actually see it. What you're seeing is the light that it emits. Okay? That's, ex, that's, part, that's part of what is being pointed to here. Jesus, the sun, is the radiance, like that light that comes off the sun, he is the radiance of God's very character and nature. And, and he's like, okay, well, maybe you don't get, maybe that's not ringing a bell for you. He's the exact imprint of his nature. It's the idea of like how a signet ring would print into wax. It's, or, or take a stamp and, and stamp it, the exact imprint. What does that mean? Well, Jesus told us multiple times. That he's like, look, I don't say things unless I hear the Father tell me to say them. He, Jesus said wild stuff like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the writer of Hebrews is just repeating what Jesus said in a different and, and, and adding some, some more eloquent language to the metaphor. He is the radiance of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. What does that mean? Why does that matter? Because part of the point is when there's gaps in our understanding or we're having some problem thinking through how, what is the right way to believe about how God is or how would he would approach something or what he thinks about something... We can always go to Jesus and know if we, can find, if we can find an answer from Christ on that, we have the answer. If Jesus said it, God said it. If Jesus did it, that's what God would do because Jesus is God and the exact radiance and imprint of his nature. Amen. Okay. So verse three, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay, we're talking, we're talking about supremacy here. We're talking about all, all things, not only were created, but are held together by the word of his power. This, how do you get bigger or better than that? I don't think you can, which is the point. Then, when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what we see in verses 2 and in verses three, is uh, in verse two and three, 
we see this, this idea, if I'm just going to boil it down for us, and so much more could be said about this, but we're not going to. It's, it's this idea. You see an argument being made for the supremacy of Christ for the, in, in this, that God is both incredibly powerful, created the world, sustains the world, and incredibly loving because he goes right into talking about him making provision and sacrifice for our sins, right? When he made purification of sins. And then he kind of pivots back to the power idea. He's, he's powerful. He's incredibly loving. This God gave himself for you. And then when he was done with that, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. That sitting down, and, and this, this is going to come up throughout the, the rest of the book as we look at that Jesus is superior to angels and Moses and priests and, and all the things that this writer is going to lead us through. This idea that Jesus sat down, that represent, that's, that's a physical manifestation of what Jesus said at the end of the crucifixion. He said, it is finished. You don't get to sit down until the job's done. And here's the thing. Here's what you can know. When Jesus finishes a job, you can, he can sit down. It's over. It's done. Finito. He sat down on the throne of majesty on high. It is finished. And when you got a God that's that powerful and that loving, you can, you can rest in the reality that he is the highest and he is the best and he is better than anything we would ever possibly settle for. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for guiding by your sovereignty the process of assembling the scriptures. Thank you that we have your word. Lord, it is a great treasure to us. Please forgive us for any time we treat it as if it is not. Uh, Lord, if there are those within the sound of my voice that have not yet come to a place where your word is of incredible value to them, that it's a precious treasure to them. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would help them by your Holy Spirit to come to a place of, of great hunger and great thirst uh, for your word, that that hunger, that thirst, it would be insatiable, unable to be satisfied, Lord. May, may that be true for all of us and, and, and not just those that maybe are new in their faith, but those that have been doing this a long time, those that have maybe read the Bible through multiple times. Lord, we, we can get to a place where uh, we have this sin of familiarity and we can begin to Treat your word as if it's not living, as if it's not powerful, as if it's not relevant to us in every stage of life and in everything that we are endeavoring to do. Your word is perfect. Your very essence and nature are contained within your word. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus. I thank you that he is superior. He is better than every foolish idol that we would let our hearts attach to. Thank you, Lord, that Every other system for finding purpose and, and salvation uh, falls far short. And there's only one hope for every man and every woman. I thank you, Lord, for all of these things. And I ask that these truths would be uh, dug down deeper and deeper into our hearts. And a, a great yield would come from it for your glory as we study this book together. We love you, Master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.